We start a new sermon series this morning. Open your Bible to Jude. It's a little book, one chapter, very near the back of your Bible. It's just, you'll find it just before the book of Revelation. Uh, And while you're finding Jude, let me throw out an assumption. My assumption is that most of us haven't spent much time, and certainly most of us haven't done a deep dive into this book. And here's why I'm guessing that. Of all the books in the New Testament, Jude is routinely referred to as the most neglected. There are other contenders for the title. My mind would go to probably Philemon, maybe 2 John and 3 John. But when you read those books, you kind of figure out that Philemon goes really well with Colossians. So a lot of times when people teach through Colossians, they'll put Philemon in there. 1 John's a great book to preach through. And a lot of times when people preach 1 John, they'll, they'll finish that by preaching 2 John and 3 John. But then there's Jude. It's brief. It's probably just one, maybe spills onto a second page, depending on the font size of your Bible. And it has a message that's not always easy to hear, and so it seems to be ignored. But we're not going to make that mistake as a church. So over the next six, seven weeks, we're going to move line by line through this book. And I just have to tell you, as I've begun to study this, and in weeks and weeks ago, as I began to read this book in preparation for this series, I am convinced that Jude has a set of messages vital for the church, Big C, and more specifically, our church today. There is an urgent need for us to read and understand the teaching of Jude. Just see if you agree with me. Do we need to hear this? Here are the major themes of Jude. First, Jude says that it is God that is it is God who has done the work to keep us in his love and therefore Jude teaches security in Christ. Second, Jude calls every Christian to be able to identify and contend against false gospels. Third, Jude shows us that God has always been the same, and he assures us that God will never change. Fourth, Jude gives grace to those who doubt, and he promises to doubters hope in Jesus, saying actually that not only will their faith grow, but your faith in Jesus will persevere to the end if it's genuine. I mean, are those not four great truths? Jude's only 25 verses. He packs all of that into here, so there's so much hope. There's so much joy. And there's so much urgency for us to see and to study in this book. And so here's what I want you to do. You can do this. You can read Jude quickly. Read Jude two, three times a week for the next six weeks. 
Two or three times a week, read this book for the next six weeks. I promise you will love it. Now let's start in the first four verses. Now Jude's a small book, so it doesn't have chapters. Usually we're used to just saying chapter and verse reference. When you're in a one-chapter book like Jude, we just say we're going to be in Jude 1 to 4. It doesn't mean chapters 1 through 4, it just means four verses. So we're going to do Jude 1 to 4 this morning. So follow along in your Bible as I read. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude 1 to 4. May God add his blessing to the reading of it. This letter begins by Jude identifying himself, and already in his greeting, we learn a lot about him. Not just who he was, but what he was like. He tells us two things. First, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And second, he's the brother of James. It's through this that we learn much more, almost everything we need to know about Jude the man. Namely, he's a humble servant of Christ. And here's how I know that, just from those words. Uh, There's only one James who would have been well known well enough to the early church of of the first century to simply be identified by a single name. So to say the brother of James, he means a very particular James. That James is the one who wrote the book of James, the brother of Jesus. So do some inferring. Jude is the brother of James, James is a brother of Jesus. Therefore, Jude is also a brother of Jesus. And we we would call these men half-brothers to Jesus. Uh, Their parents, so they're full brothers with each other, their parents are Joseph and Mary. Jesus' mother was Mary, and his father is God. But when he was born on earth, Joseph took him as his son, so this is Jude's humility coming through. Like he, he could have said, Jesus is my brother. I'm a big deal. Listen to me. Instead he says, though Jesus is my brother, he's so much greater than I am. We're not equals. I'm his servant. If you have a sibling, just think about that for a minute. Do you say, I am not equal, I'm, I'm a servant of my sibling. And then he says, 
to the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's so much grace packed into this statement. Christians are called, beloved, and kept in Christ. Now, all three of those are passive as far as we're concerned. If you're in Christ, God is the one who has initiated that by calling you. He loved you enough. You're beloved enough by him that he would give up his son so that your sins could be forgiven. And then he will keep you in the faith until you're ready to live with him forever in glory. Called, beloved, and kept. Now, one of the great things about a short letter like Jude is how many connections you can see just with a a single read-through. So Romans, let's just take Romans. Romans is probably the greatest letter ever written, but it will take you about an hour to read. You'll forget a lot of what you've read by the time you're done with it. Now Jude, on the other hand, you can read Jude in five minutes, and then you can go back with your next ten minutes, and you can read it really slowly, and you can just watch all these incredible connections emerge, and then you can start stringing them together. And when you do that in Jude, you see the power of God at work in a Christian's life. Now, here's the main thread that works through the letter of Jude. Verse 1 says that God keeps Christians in Jesus Christ. Now, look very near the end of the letter. You can do it. It's probably on the same page in your Bible. At verse 24. Now, to him who is able to, what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Kept at the beginning, keep at the end. Jude begins this letter by by saying Christians will be kept by God and he ends it by saying he'll keep us from stumbling. If you wonder what your life will be like, what your future holds, if you wonder, will my Christian faith persevere? Christian, here's your answer. The God of all power and glory will see to it, he'll see to it, that you are brought blameless into his presence and you will have unending joy. And that's how Christians are kept, according to Jude. But if you were to just read the letter slowly and you took time to notice the patterns, what you'd say is, oh, okay, so Jude is a letter about Christians being kept. But a slow reading of this letter will see this word actually come out more than just these two times. It's actually used, again, in verses 6 and 13. But there it's not Christians being kept. It's those who oppose God being kept apart from him. This might be one of the reasons people skip over Jude. It's a book of great grace and joy. But Jude is a dire warning of judgment. Don't oppose God. 
don't try to deceive Christians. And don't fall in love with the world. That's what Jude says. Keep. Same word actually is used again in verse 21. Keep in the love of God. Now we're going we're to see much more about, about being kept both inside and, and outside of the grace of God. But let's just allow that to, to rise out of the letter. It's one of the great things, again, about just being able to work slowly through a letter. So many things can just bubble up to the surface from this as we read. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to, cont- to contend for the faith. Now, here's the other main theme of the letter. This is what Jude is about. Christians who are kept in Christ, those kept in Christ, contend for the faith. And one of the challenges that that Jude calls all of us to rise up to is that the contending for the faith is not just to be done by the pastors and the elders. It's not just to be done by the Sunday school teachers. It's not just to be done only by the long-term members. It's every Christian coming together for our faith, fighting for our faith together. This is a whole church project, calling. We fight together because it's our faith. Not mine, not just yours, not even just our churches. It's the faith shared by every Christian. That's why Jude calls it the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We didn't invent it. It's been entrusted to us. And part of our calling is to contend for it in our generation and pass it on as delivered to us to the next. And in verse 4, we're told what we're contending against what we're fighting for. It says that certain people have crept in unnoticed. So church, we're not fighting heresy that comes from, you know, out out there. I'm going to be blunt. That's easy. It's easy to fight lies from the world. We're fighting for the purity of our church. And Jude's angry. Don't mistake this. You can hear it in how he writes. Certain people have crept in. That's not how you describe somebody you're indifferent about. He's mad about it. I wanted to write you a letter about our common salvation, but I had to write this one because this is such a pressing issue. If there's any doubt but what he thinks about these people, he describes them as designated for condemnation. Then he just simply labels them ungodly. And through the rest of the letter, he'll actually refer five more times. And he'll just say, these people. Actually, by the end, the last two, it's just these. But this is who he's talking about. The reason they need to be stopped is because they, is because they pervert the gospel And they deny the supremacy of Christ. So let me just show you how these these four verses of Jude are functioning. Because it's good to have an idea of what we're being set up for in in the rest of the letter. In verses 1 and 2, we're being introduced to God's keeping work. 
Remember, Christians are kept in Christ, and in the middle of the letter we're told that, that those who oppose God are kept in darkness. And then in verses 3 and 4, they call us to contend for the faith, and then they begin to explain the challenge we'll need to fight against. And so here's how I would summarize the introduction to Jude, and we're going to build the rest of the time off of this. Summarize it like this. Those called must contend for the true faith because ungodly people will try to convert it. That's what Jude is setting us up for. Those who are called, same thing as those who are kept, contend for the true faith because ungodly people will try to pervert it. So what I want to do is I want to just take that statement and I want to ask three questions of it. If what Jude is saying is that those who are called, which which is all of us, you are either called by God or you are not. There are no bystanders here. There can be no spectators in the life of the church. If there really is a faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and that faith will be besieged by those who are intent on distorting it, destroying it. If they want to harm the church built on the gospel, then this is a call to arms that none of us should be able to ignore. And if you're not moved by that, if you don't feel a responsibility for yourself to contend for this faith, then we need to start asking why that is. What what do you believe your faith is worth contending for? True Christians who have true faith will see the urgency here. And so if, if Jude says that's what Christians are called to, Contend for the truth faith because ungodly people would try to pervert it. Then I want to just ask these three questions. What is the true faith? How do we know what the true faith is? Second, what will the ungodly do to pervert the gospel? And third, how do we contend for it? So if we believe we are all called to contend together for the true faith, because ungodly people will try to convert it or pervert it, what is that true faith? What will the ungodly do to try to pervert the gospel? And how do we contend for it? So first, just what, what is the true faith? If, if a non-Christian friend were just to ask you bluntly, What is the Christian faith? How would you answer? My answer would be, I think it has at least two components, two foundational components. You have to say that the Christian faith is both personal and it's theological. It's a relationship with Jesus and to be a Christian you must know the truth. You cannot divorce one from the other and be a true Christian. Uh, We see people try to do this all the time. People will claim to know Jesus, 
but their description of him is, isn't fully biblical. The, the Bible says that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. That's John 1.14. It's the same Jesus who says that following after him is hard, and we have to be willing to leave everything for his sake. But he also says, when you come after me, my burden is light and my way is easy. And it's the same Jesus who says, sin no more, but when you sin, I'll be quick to forgive your unfaithfulness. If you're going to be a true Christian, you have to know the real Jesus. And then you have to know what's true. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 captures these essential parts of the Christian life really well. If you want to, keep your finger in Jude and hop over to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a little bit from verse 20. I usually don't even like to have you go to a second place with your, with your Bible just to stay anchored in one spot, but this was just so good I wanted us to go here. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the true faith? Again, it's relational and it's theological. You can't be a Christian without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We, say it, we see it right here. Verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. Christianity, folks, Christianity is not a faith about Jesus. It's a faith in Jesus. We don't just know about him. We're friends with him. More than that, he lives in us and we live in him. We've been united to him. And then our faith is in Jesus, but we have to know what's true. He embodies all that is true. The fullness of God dwelled in him. And it's in him that we believe. So verse 21 says the truth is in Jesus. Verse 20 says that you have to learn him, means to grow in him, to come along with him. And what were we taught? How, how are we taught in Jesus? Jump over to verse 22 there. We're taught to put off the old self, which was corrupted by sin, and to be renewed, putting on the new self. No longer dead to sin, but alive in righteousness and holiness. So Christians don't believe we're just a little bit better. And this is the truth coming in to what it means to know the gospel. We don't believe that we're just a little bit better than we once were. We believe that we died and have been made new. And that's a theological belief. Because all of us are still alive from when we were not Christians, but now we are. It's our theological belief. We believe that spiritually we've died with Christ and been raised to new life. 
That at the cross, the wrath of God against sin was satisfied, and by faith, we join Jesus in his death. We just celebrated this in baptism. And when he was raised to new life, we too, by faith, are given new life as well. And now we walk in that newness of life. According to our old way, we walked in sin. But now we walk in holiness. Somebody says, what does it mean to be a Christian? You can't, the grace of God is real and substantial. But you can't ignore that the Christian life is to be lived in pursuit of a personal holiness. It doesn't mean we've, we've stopped sinning. But church, look at me when I say this. It also means we try as hard as we can not to. We don't presume upon the grace of God. And when we sin, we're eager to go to Jesus knowing that in him we will find forgiveness. And so we repent of our sins in his name and accept grace through him. We trust that he takes our sin upon himself and we bear the guilt of it no longer. That's our faith. It's personal. You can't have the grace of God without a relationship with the real Jesus. But our relationship, or, but, but our faith is also theological. It's not based on warm feelings or fuzzies. We believe it's rooted in a great exchange of Christ absorbing the wrath of God in our place, that we've been united with him in death and now in life, and we live in him as a new creation. That's what Jesus told the apostles he would do for them. It's what he told them to go out and tell other people he could do for them. It's what the first generation of Christians told the second, and the second generation told the third, and every subsequent generation of Christians have held that out for the next. And here we are 2,000 years later, still proclaiming that. Still putting every bit of our hope in that faith. And that more than anything else in the entire world is worth contending for. So that's the true faith. Second question. If that's the true faith, what will the ungodly do to pervert it? There are plenty of clues in verse 4, and then I think we can extrapolate a couple of things forward to our day. So look at verse 4 again. Jude says that the people will try to creep in unnoticed. Our first line of defense, creep in unnoticed, our first line of defense has to be who gets inside our church. Now let's set a couple of terms. There is a Biblical difference between a church and a church building. Anybody is welcome to come into our building and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. To be in the church means to be a member of this local congregation. And to do that, we're going to make sure we can do everything we possibly can to make sure that you're not one designated for destruction. So there is only one criteria for membership in our church, and that's on purpose. It's so that we can put 
all of our efforts into making sure that that one standard is met. You must be a true Christian to be a member of our church. We don't care how much money you might be able to give. We don't care what your leadership capacity is. We don't care what volunteer skills you might bring to the table. Our only question is, have you been truly converted? Were you once dead and are you now alive? And that simplicity means that when our elders interview you and when our gathered membership hears you testify to having faith and in, in keeping with repentance, we don't need to divide our attention. We're only asking that one question. Is this person a Christian? And listen, when you, when you join the church, and I want you to if you're not a member, we're gracious. We don't turn this into a, a quiz of systematic theology. But we take it as seriously as we know how because of this very truth right here. If we, this is what we're told, if we don't hold out, put a barrier up and saying only those of the truth faith can come in, Jude says our church might be polluted. And we can't have that. So that's the first test we're given. How might the ungodly pervert the gospel? They're going to try to creep in. Uh, the second and third come in the last half of this verse. Ungodly pr- people pervert the gospel. And that word pervert there means to alter. So they were changing the faith. And how, were they, how were they doing that? It says they were doing that by turning the grace of God into sensuality. Uh, That word sensuality tells us that they were doing what I said we can't do earlier. We cannot presume upon the grace of God. By turning and perverting the gospel into sensuality, they were indulging in in worldly pleasures that gratified their flesh. They were assuming that that God's grace would just take care of them apart from from any heart of repentance or any, any attempt at personal holiness. So think of, of sexual sin, greed, other, other kinds of debauchery, living only for themselves, just selfishness. So, so what they were doing is they were actually ripping the holiness imperatives out of our faith. Friends, God's grace is wider than any extent of our sin if we repent in his name. But that doesn't mean that we can treat it cheaply. Assuming that it comes to us easily. And that there's no cost to either God in it or no call on our lives because of it. If we do that, not only have we misunderstood, but we've vastly underestimated the grace of God. It costs God his son to be able to give grace. And it demands from us denying our former selves and any claim we used to have on our own souls and giving ourselves completely to him. That's what that last perversion of the gospel is saying. You can't reach for the grace of God with one hand, but hold on to your old life with the other. You can't say, I want the cross of Jesus but I won't take him as Lord. It's popular today 
to say that you live by your own rules, that you've got your own truth. Church, it may be popular, but it's not Christian. As followers of Jesus, we are people under authority. Jesus is our Lord, and he's our master. To try and take his name, but refuse his authority, is actually to deny him. So that's how people will pervert the gospel. Last question. If there is a true faith, and the ungodly will try to pervert it, how do we contend for it? I think for this we can go back to verse 3. We can even go back to verse 2 a little bit. So Jude says in verse 3, he wanted to write about their common salvation, but found it necessary to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's hopes can be our plans. And and I'm just going to work backward. So how do we contend for the faith, specifically the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints? The answer is we read, learn, we study, we memorize, we internalize that faith which has been delivered to us and held out for us in the Bible. How do we contend for the faith? We be a Bible people. Now the Old Testament books were already in use in Jesus' time. So we can be confident that those are authoritative. And then we can look just even at a place like this in Jude, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Every New Testament book was either authored by an apostle of Jesus or a close associate of an apostle. So they're all either first or immediately second-hand accounts. So we can be sure that the Bible that we have in our hands now, the truths that it teaches, the description of our faith, how it explains what it is to live and to be a Christian. We can believe that this is the faith that Jesus handed the apostles and the apostles handed to the early Christians and so on and so forth. So the first, very first thing, we contend for the faith by knowing and obeying the Bible. And after that, just keep working backwards. Jude was eager to write about their common salvation. He wanted to write a letter of celebration and encouragement. He couldn't. He said, I I can't do that. But but we can. We can contend for the faith by celebrating our common salvation together and encouraging people in it. It's hard to be a Christian in the world. I mean, life's hard in general, right? And being a Christian is great. There's no better thing in the world. But we all know that actually being a Christian can sometimes make life even harder. So let's encourage one another in our common faith. Where people are struggling, let's come beside them. Where they need to be built up, let's lift them up, give them hope. Where people are wayward in their faith, let's admonish them in grace, in love. When people are believing lies, And it seems if maybe they're about to be snatched from the faith, let's run. Let's not walk. Let's not make a time. Let's run to them and plead with them to turn and hold fast to the truth. One more thing, verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This This is a prayer. 
Part of the way that Jude was contending for the faith was, was praying for these Christians who were under attack. Not even so much from the outside, he says, but for those who had crept in and he prayed that they would remember the mercy, peace, and love of God. So let's pray for one another. Let's pray and bring one another to God. Now, there will be plenty in this letter as we, we move through it about, about condemning what is false. That's a big part of this letter. But we also contend for the faith when we preach that there is mercy in Christ. In that where there is division, there can be peace. In that where it seems hopeless, the love of God in Christ can make a way. If all seems lost, church, it is not. In fact, it is always as sure as it has ever been. God has not gone anywhere. He's the same as he's always been, and he's the same as he will always be. So let's contend for the faith by being people so convinced, so consumed by the grace of God that that, that we have the audacity to say that where you're under wrath, you can have mercy, and where you're at war, God can bring that, God can bring peace. Let's just end where where this letter started, and the letter's going to end. God has done an incomparable work of grace in in calling you if you're in him. And church, he will see that through. He will keep you for Jesus. He won't let you go. One day you will be presented to him in glory. And until that that time comes, let's, let's contend for our great faith. Let's hope, even in the midst of people who will deny Jesus, that they'll be brought to repentance. Let's believe and let's have the confidence that God will preserve our faith until we glorify him and until that faith has become sight. It's a great hope that's held out for us. We have five more weeks of this. I can't wait. This is a great letter. Go home and read it this afternoon. And may God add his blessing to you as you do it. Let's pray. Father, may our church be kept in the love of Christ. And may we contend for this marvelous faith that has been delivered to us. And may we faithfully deliver it to who is next until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.